That's how it all starts. The hallmark of an all-star team combines the best minds from all over the scene. We got friends of the show coming back, bringing laughs, jokes, and they're also dropping facts. So kick back, relax, and unwind. What you're going to find is going to blow your mind. Hi, I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, host of Star Talk Radio. I've recruited a crack team of scientists and science educators to help me bring the universe down to Earth. And they are the Star Talk All-Stars. Welcome to Star Talk All-Stars. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and this week is a special mashup edition. You'll hear like mishmash of some of our favorite moments around a specific topic within a range of show hosts, expert guests, and co-hosts. Check it out. Welcome, one and all, to Star Talk All Stars, and I'm your All Star host of the evening, Seth Shostak, I'm senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. That's S E T I. Almost my name, but that's coincidence. SETI is an acronym. It stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. In other words, not just life in space, but life that's as clever as you are, or maybe even more so, not to take anything away from your cleverness. So today we're going to talk about a related topic on that score, and in particular, planets. Joining me as my co-host is the very funny Chuck Nice. Hey, man. How are you, Seth? <laughs> I'm just fine, Chuck. Glad to have you here. Well, <laughs> as, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Right. Because the question is, do we even qualify as that? Yeah, that, well, that's a, that's a legitimate question. People ask, is there intelligence inside the beltway or whatever? Right. And we have an operational definition of intelligence, just, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, it's simple. Excellent. Can you build a radio transmitter? That's well, there it. there you have it. Can you build a radio <laughs> transmitter? You're intelligent. So I'm not intelligent. <laughs> well, listen, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, nobody at any of the parties I go to is able to do that either. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, and our guest is Jason Wright, and he's uh, an associate professor of astronomy, a member of the Center for Exoplanets and Habitable Worlds, and he works at Penn State University. Nice. In uh, State Hi, College, Seth. Pennsylvania. Hey, Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Listen, I'm let's, actually yeah? coming to you from Aspen, Colorado, of all places at the moment. Really? Well, that's just a terrible place. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's rough. You want to be up there. <laughs> no, it just sucks to be you, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Well, what we want to know from you is what's the status of planets, not around our own sun, but around other suns. Hey. And, uh, you know, one of the big news items recently was the discovery of a planet that may end up being the closest planet to us uh, of, of any of them that aren't in our own solar system, Proxima b. T- tell me a little bit about Proxima b. Right. That, that is big news. So there's no maybe about it. This planet is definitely the closest planet to the sun that's not orbiting the sun. So the star is called Proxima. We used to always call it Proxima Centauri, which is just Latin for the the closest thing in the constellation of the centaur. But now we know that it's actually the very closest star to the sun anywhere. So its planets really are the closest. So we've been finding planets around other stars in the galaxy for a little over 20 years now. And thanks to space missions like the Kepler Space Telescope, Uh, We now know of thousands of planets in the galaxy. And this one, though, is different. It's special because it's really our neighbor. And so we're going to be studying this one in particular because it's right there forever, basically. And we're going to be wondering about it and how to get there and what we can learn about it. Well, you say say it's the closest uh, one. I mean, maybe we ought to give them a number for that. How how far away is it? 
So stars are really, really far away to get technical about it. Uh, this one being being close is uh, a little over four light years away. So if you could ride on a light beam, then it would only take you four years to get there. So in cosmic terms, that's they're our neighbors. They're right next door. Yeah, but I can't uh, ride on a light beam. Yeah, I would love to ride on a light beam. As a matter of fact, that's <laughs> that's going to be the name of my next album: Riding on a Light Beam with Chuck Nice. Oh, that's nice. Uh, so, uh, so give us an uh, an idea of four light years. Let's uh, let's 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 break that down into human terms. How long would it take us to get there? Well, if we got our best rockets launched a probe into interstellar space, and we've done this before, so you know we know we could do that. Um, let's see, it would take something like, I don't know, 100,000 years to get there, maybe tens of thousands of years if we went really fast. Yeah, I figure so, about 100,000 you know, is right. I mean, that's a long time to be eating peanuts off your lap in the middle seat, right? <laughs> so 75,000 years to get there. Yeah, but, but there, there are, I mean, it isn't to say that you couldn't get there faster. I mean, if, you're, if you don't want to go yourself and you just want to send some sort of object, maybe the size of a silver dollar or something like that, to Proxima, right. you could do that faster, couldn't you? Well, in principle, right. I mean, this used to be all science fiction, but you know, recently people have thought hard about this. There's a project called Breakthrough Starshot, which is trying to figure out how to do exactly that. So there's this old idea that if you gave a spaceship a sail, a light sail, mm -hmm. so just like a big parachute or something, and then you shot a really powerful laser beam at that parachute, you could accelerate something really fast. And it takes a really powerful laser beam to launch something that could have a person in it. But if you only wanted to launch like a tiny little microchip or something like that, something that weighs less than a raisin, then you would only need a superpowered laser about a square kilometer across. Well, that, that's a very that's modest requirement, isn't it? I know, it? Yeah. I know. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get back to those planets if we could, Jason, because, you know... How many planets out there are not just, you know, kind of worthless planets like Neptune, Uranus, those guys, but, you know, might be, <laughs> might be the kind you'd want to build condos on, or, you know, the kind where you might have oceans, atmospheres, that kind of thing. Beachfront property is what we're talking about here, Jason. <laughs> oh, right. You want to see, you want to see water on that thing. That's right. You want to visit. Well, let's see. There's about 100 uh, billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and we now know that most or all of them have planets. Mm-hmm. And so right away we know that we've got many hundreds of billions of planets in the Milky Way galaxy. And some fraction of them, like 10 or 20%, probably have about the temperature that you would need for liquid water. And so we're talking about tens of billions of planets in the Milky Way that could. Wow. And we, we like those planets that might have liquid water because we want to study them and figure out if they do have liquid water or whatever. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of property out there to be uh, to be claimed. Look at that. So, so I mean, what you're saying, if there are tens of billions of planets that are sort of like the Earth, uh, the possibility that this is the only place where anything interesting is happening, if you think anything interesting is happening, happening here. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> that, I mean, that, 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 would, that would make us pretty special, wouldn't it? Um, if they were right, if none of them had life like life on Earth, yeah, that would make Earth, you know, fantastically unique. You know, well, one in ten billion or something like that. That would be um, maybe very surprising. Well, yeah, and but but is it possible too? I mean, when you think about, I mean, if you were just to play Earth out to its logical conclusion, <laughs> which is uh, the sun will expand and burn us all to a crisp. Uh, is it possible that that has already happened? So there's been life, but it's expired 
because, of course, that's what all life does at some point. So is it, 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 how, how would we be able to find that signature or is that if, if the idea is to find life first and then you can draw those conclusions? Well, it's true. There's got to be a lot of planets out there that used to be able to have liquid water on it. And by the way, the, the term we use, we say that the planet's in what's called the habitable zone. Right. That just means it's far enough from its star uh, so that it's not boiling all the water away. But right. it's, it's close enough to the star that it's not just an ice ball. So when planets are in that habitable zone, that's that's where we think we'd see this liquid water. Um, and so certainly there are planets that used to be in habitable zones of their stars, but something happened, like the star got big and blew up or or burned out or you know one of the things stars do or something might have happened to the planet in its orbit. Um, so when we give that count, we're talking about the number of planets that are in their habitable zones today. Okay. But yeah, the history of the galaxy is 10 billion years, and so there's probably a lot of formerly habitable planets out there. Yeah, it sounds to me like Chuck is more interested in in life that's deceased than in the country. I mean, it's like going to New Jersey and looking for fossils instead of looking for New Jerseyites, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there, there are plenty of fossils. Plenty but, of fossils. But, yeah, and some of them are actually New Jerseyites. Yeah, okay. Most of them have been buried by uh, <laughs> irreputable forces, I'll just say. Jason, I've got to ask you, because you're really responsible for this idea being promulgated uh, about a, a star that has the lovely name KI6846-2852. All right, never mind the name. Say that name again, please. KIC846-2852, but I may have gotten How it wrong. How can you remember that, Seth? I can never remember that. It number. just falls off the, <laughs> the tongue, actually, I find. But <laughs> I call it Bob. Whatever. That's very cool. So, so, so this is a star. I mean, it's, it's not very close to us. But it's very unusual, and there was a really an interesting find about it, but uh, you can tell me about that. Sure. Well, the Kepler spacecraft was looking for planets around other stars, and it, to do that, it, it looked at 100,000 stars. And most of these aren't nearby. They're not like Proxima, just four light years away or something. They're more like 400 light years away. Mm. And um, it was watching their brightnesses extremely carefully, just in case a planet, maybe like Earth, passed in front as it went around the star, passed in front of the star and made it a little bit dimmer. And so it found thousands of planets like that. It also found lots of stars misbehaving, getting brighter and dimmer for other reasons. But there was one that was just totally unlike all the other. It, it, it started to get dimmer as if there was a planet going in front of it or something. But then instead of getting just maybe 1% dimmer, because there's a planet like Jupiter around it, it just kept getting dimmer. And over the course of days, it got like 20% dimmer than it had ever been before. And then all of a sudden, over a few more days, it got bright again, it went back to normal. And stuff like this kept happening. It kept having these strange dimming events as if very large amounts of stuff was between us and the star. Um, and much this stuff has to be much bigger than something like Jupiter. And whatever it was, it wasn't round like a planet or like another star. And so it just had all, all the astronomers completely baffled about what was going on. Well, we don't have too much time, but tell me, what are the possibilities? I mean, a star getting dim like that, it's unprecedented. Uh, could right. it be alien handiwork? <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of possibilities. Um, we've been scratching our heads looking for lots of natural explanations. But one thing that I noticed is that there was a guy named Luke Arnold uh, who published a paper before Kepler launched. And he said, hey, if there are advanced civilizations 
they might build giant things in space, maybe to collect lots of energy like solar panels or something. If that's true, then those pass in front of the star, Kepler would see that happen, and it wouldn't look like a planet. It would look like something we totally didn't understand. So when this star was discovered, I said, hey, you know, this guy Luke Arnold, he said we might see this, and if we do, that we should be on the lookout. It could be solar panels. So could be. We're not out of all of our other ideas, but that, that one's definitely out there now. Okay, I, I got to ask you, this is this, just the last, the last question, really quick now, Jason. If you're sitting in the local diner there in State College, Pennsylvania, and the guy next to you says, okay, how much are you willing to bet that what we're seeing going on here is the result of a giant alien astro-engineering project, what do you say? Well, what odds are you giving me? <laughs> no, not, 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 not very much. You know, we see weird things in space all the time. We can talk about other bizarre signals that have come from space and turned out to be not aliens, but something really new and amazing and interesting in and of itself. So I think we've almost certainly found a new, weird kind of way stars can get dimmer that we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know how to put odds on aliens. I presume it's very low. Well, Jason Wright... Uh, We'll be getting back to you, but now it's time to go to Chuck and the Cosmic Queries. These have been culled from the the best questions on the Internet about this subject and maybe others. Yes, exactly. Uh, You know, our listeners are uh, extremely curious, as a lot, and uh, they have all from Facebook and Twitter and every... Uh, station where you find Star Talk, uh, they have sent us some queries for you guys to tackle. So you don't know what they are, but it doesn't make a difference. It's it's not about stumping you. It's just about if if there is an answer, I'm sure you'll have it. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, let's jump right into it. Let's start off with a Patreon patron question. And Patreon is a uh, a, a place where people support Star Talk and uh, monetarily. And if they do so, uh, we give them uh, first crack at uh, asking us a cosmic query. Just a little, just a little perk of buying our love and affection. So um, this is from Keila Silvis from Patreon, and she says, "I'm Keila Silvis from Minnesota, and my aunt, Doctor Patty Boyd from Goddard, helped me with this." Uh, particular question for extra exoplanets. Do you guys know Dr. Patty Boyd, either one of you, uh, gentlemen? I don't think so. No? Well, yeah, she may be working under a pseudonym. It's a pseudonym? Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yes, it's like her, like, that's her stripper name, yeah. Dr. Patty Boyd. <laughs> um, she says, <clears throat> besides radio waves, what signs is humanity giving off to other stars that Earth possesses intelligent life so aside from the actual signals that we are shooting out into space is there any other indication from somebody who's looking at us from four light years away to say wow there might be some intelligent life on this little rock from third from the sun i have to say it hasn't impressed them enough for them to send their interstellar battle wagons to earth so there's at least that (laughs) i'll let jason start i'll uh, what, what what do you think is the answer to that, Jason? Well, yeah, there's a few ways that you might notice that we were here. Um, one of my favorites is that our large telescopes often shoot big laser beams into space to try and correct for the Earth's atmosphere. We create little artificial stars in our atmosphere and then deform the mirrors of our telescopes to compensate for the blurring effects of the atmosphere. So what that means is we're always shooting these lasers off into space. And so if we shot one at one of, you know, a, a, another planet, 
they might notice the laser. It's pretty weak, but it's it's conceivable. But it's only um, a, a couple of directions, right? They have to be in the right oh, place. Yeah, yeah. They'd have to be right along. We'd have to be intentionally pointing our telescope at them. So that, uh, that presumably for some other reason. That so would that's be kind, one way. That would be kind of like uh, you know the old movies where the person would use a mirror. Yeah, the they're lost at sea, and the plane yeah. says, "What's." What's that down there? I think I see something. It was always cowboys trying to signal that the Indians were afoot. That's right. what I saw. Yeah, Although, <laughs> that, you know, that was it, back before the invented sound. When, in movies, when you're standing there and suddenly that little laser beam appears on your on your chest, it's usually not a good sign. So maybe we shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that that's one way. There, there are other things, Chuck. I mean, Definitely. for example, uh, if you use hairspray, it doesn't look like you use hairspray, but if you want to... I use mousse. Okay. Anyone, anyone knows me? Yeah, well, in the old days, hairspray had these chlorofluorocarbons, you know, and that they kind of changed the contents of the atmosphere, right? Yes. Uh, you remember the ozone hole and all that's that stuff. The big hole in the ozone. If they had a big enough telescope, it didn't have to be a really big telescope, but maybe they could find that in the atmosphere. Hey, that, uh, what do you think, Zork? That doesn't look natural, so maybe maybe that would be a thing. And, uh, of course, if they had a really big telescope, I mean, you're talking about telescopes the size of downtown Baltimore or something, if you had a telescope really big, maybe you could see things like freeway interchanges and so forth, or, and you can work this out, actually, the lights from New York City. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you could pick up that light, you'd see, gee, it's awful, awfully close to this, <laughs> it's a sodium-based light, right? All that orange light. Right, that right. We're getting rid of those now, but for a long time, and uh, maybe you could do that. It, it would take really big instruments. The easiest thing, Pick up the uh, radars, the television, the FM radio. So really, it's 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 more the signals than anything else. I think so. I yeah. think that that's a, that's a point because that means that since we've only been doing that since the Second World War, really, right? Probably nobody knows we're here. So you know, those people who feel they're being abducted, you got to ask, how come they came now? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So now, uh, in addition to that, uh, does that mean that the signals that we have? However weak, like our just regular television and our regular radio. Uh, does that escape and go out as well? I mean, would somebody, let's say, if they had the right listening equipment, be able to pick up a broadcast from 1930? It's just like, uh, you know, like, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, on ships and seas. Would they pick that up as well? Well, I don't know how they'd feel about the content, but they wouldn't actually be able to pick it up because AM radio is refracted by the ionosphere. That sounds kind of techy, but what it means is it bounces around the earth. In fact, that's why you can pick up a Chicago station here on the East Coast or whatever. So it has advantages, but it means that all those early radio uh, signals didn't make it. All right, well, we'll, we're going to take a short break, but we'll be back shortly answering more of your cosmic queries right here on Star Talk. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I am Dr. Natalie Starkey. I still have Chuck Nice with me here and Lindy Elkins Tanton joining us from Arizona. Yes. Back to the cosmic yeah. queries. Back to the cosmic queries. Mm. Now, you know, we had to take a little break, but uh, I really did kind of step on on a Mongus's question <laughs> when I interjected my uh, my uh, question about the crystals. But uh, let's get let me just give her the uh, proper due. Okay. Okay, because here was her actual question. Given the fact that we see life-sustaining water in a few places here in our solar system, how likely is it in other solar systems and galaxies there is water like we have on Earth? 
So okay. that's the that's the that's real crux. The we we got off into the crystals and you know that whole deal and yeah. uh, which is fascinating. It is, but uh, and it's important and, and very important. But please go ahead and finish uh, Anna's question. Okay, so Lindy. Elsewhere, I think you you alluded before that, you know, yes, it's quite likely in the way we think the water in Earth is present, but it was trapped from the beginning, that actually this could happen lots of times elsewhere, all yeah. throughout the universe. Um, but we haven't, have we seen any yet? Have we actually detected it? There's hints of what's in the atmospheres of exoplanets around stars far away, but only about 12 of them have had any part of their atmosphere measured yet. So that's really an unknown area for us. All we can really do right now, besides work on making those measurements, is learn more about how water is delivered to our planets here in our solar system. Yeah. That is it. These is things it. are very far away, but right. I I strongly believe there is life elsewhere in the universe, and that because there's water, I think there's just got to be. This place is so huge that you know it's unimaginable, but I think it's got to be there. Now, a couple of years ago, I saw this, uh, I uh, read this article, and there was a discovery, and it was more of a postulate than a discovery. Uh, okay. That. Um, there may be when we consider all of the galaxies that we know. Uh, uh, and and now with the information that we have from the imaging that's coming back, that there might be as many as 600 million planets like Earth. Wow. Is that true? And yeah. Yes, that is true. Cool. So that is exciting. Yeah, that's yeah. very exciting. And, and so with 600 million planets like Earth, uh, uh, what does that do to the likelihood of life and even sentient life? Yeah, I mean... It's a huge number to even imagine. This is like, so I just, it has to be that there has to be life somewhere else. I'm just absolutely sure of it. When we say they're Earth-like, we should probably explain why they're Earth-like. Yes. Because um, we end up, we, we basically, to get an Earth, we need a planet orbiting a star that is, it's kind of the right distance away from the star. And it's got to be the right size star, so it's not too hot, not too cold. Mm -hmm. And that this planet is at the right distance that it could have liquid water on its surface. Um, but it probably needs an atmosphere there to contain it. Probably needs a magnetic field to keep it kind of safe um, and and therefore it's kind of what we call the Goldilocks zone so this is you know the porridge sorry the oatmeal whatever you call it here oh, it's porridge. Not, yeah it's porridge as well uh, not too hot not too cold not too just cold. perfect so that we have the really good conditions like we have on earth so these planets exist and there's a lot of them um, we you know it's hard finding them but they're, they're there just because they're so far away um, but yeah there are a lot of them I think they've got to contain life what do you think Lindy is there life out there I think that there has to be, I'm with you, but here's the thing that we really don't know. I, I think we're pretty confident that there are really a lot, hundreds of millions of billion planets like the Earth, but how long does it take and how unlikely is it for life to actually start? If yeah. we have evidence here on Earth that life only started on Earth one time, even though we had the perfect conditions, right. does that make it less likely? However, I'm with you. There has to be life out but there. But we don't yet know if there isn't life elsewhere in the solar system. I mean, that's the thing. There's not complex life. Right. So we know that because I think we would have seen it by now. But, you know, we're still looking on Mars. There might have been life in the past. And the other thing that we have to take into consideration, though, is that there could have been life and it could be gone. Yes, exactly. Because our solar system will one day be gone. Yeah, so there is very possible that another solar system with the same type of conditions as an Earth planet like ours came along 
And uh, now we're looking at uh, that system as a part of a black hole somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. that has, yeah. Okay, all Which right. It's a scary thought. That'll be us. At well, some point. yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to worry about that because I got a feeling that it might happen after I'm gone and yeah. I'm that selfish. <laughs> <laughs> Let us move on. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm just laughing at the name. Electronic Janitor. Oh. Uh, this, <laughs> is this from Twitter? This is from Twitter. Is this Twitter handle? At Electronic Janitor. Nice. That's a very cool handle. Something tells me he's an IT guy who really hates his job. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> he wants to know this. Uh, where other than Earth have we positively identified... Uh, water like we have here on Earth. Okay, but we have tons of different types of water on Earth. So I guess do we we've got so we, we've got fresh water, we've got salt water. Let's salt say. water, fresh um, water. So yeah, lo loads of places. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Just it depends if you want it as liquid or or not. But I mean, we do there. We think there is liquid in loads of other places. So yeah. So now here's what I want to know, uh, based upon his question uh, for you and Lindy. Um, you know, ice seems to be the order of the day. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, space is really, really cold. Yeah. But where does the ice get to be ice? Because it had to be someplace hot and something else before it became that ice on the asteroid or the comet. Okay. So where does that happen? Where does water become the ice water? Right. Well, you know, what is that? Is that in the formation of something or what happens to make that happen? Okay. Lindy, do you want to? Sure. Uh I can tell you what our best idea is, although I don't think we really understand this process yet. But it looks like when planets are forming, they start out just as a as a as a rotating disk of gas and dust around the young star. We see this elsewhere in the universe, even though ours is long gone. And close to the young star, it's too hot for the water to be ice, but further away from the young star, ice is formed because it's cold, even in that early dust and gas disk. And so some of the ice could have been ice from the beginning of the solar system, and it was never melted and then frozen again. Oh. There we go. Look at yeah. that. Primordial. So if we captured a comet, we could drink primordial ice from the origin of the solar system. So this is like four and a and half that sounds like a party. years old. Uh, that's a party I want to go to, Lindy, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I know, that's good. Yeah. A little vodka. Yeah, look, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like, you know, a little kettle one and primordial ice. Primordial ice, yes. yeah. Can I, can I have a kettle one on uh, primordial rocks, please? So that's it. <laughs> All right. And you could get the, the ice made of different types of hydrogen. So if you got like the heavy ice, yes. then you'd get potentially ice cubes that might sink in your drink rather than float. Nice. Yeah. This All could right. be fun. Yo, this is fun. <laughs> This is Star Talk. Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm David Grinspoon, aka Dr. Funky Spoon on Twitter, and I'll be your host today. And I'm joined by my co host, Chuck Nice. Hey, David. What's up, Dr. Funky Spoon? How's it going, Chuck? It's doing well, man. How about you? It's been a little while since we have been together in studio. It has been a while. It's great to be uh, back with you here and in, in front of the microphone. Absolutely, my friend. Yeah. All right. And uh, um, today, 
on Star Talk All Stars. We're going to um, do something a little bit different. It's um, a kind of cosmic queries that uh, we we might sort of call "Are you smarter than an eighth grader?" Uh, my, uh, I, I have an answer. I have an answer. No, no, I am not. Wouldn't that depend on the eighth grader? <laughs> no, in my case, pretty much no is the answer. I'm just going to go with that, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be right. Well, especially the eighth graders that I know. Well, Chuck, are you funnier than an eighth grader? Now that's definitely <laughs> yes. And, it, and it, whether you're laughing with me or at me, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I'm telling you, that's where I will. That's where I'm a Viking. That's where you'll make your stand. That's where I'll yeah. make my stand. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, so so what happened here was um, I sort of had the opportunity to uh, interact with a group of eighth graders from uh, from Chula Vista, California. Okay. And and I've never actually met these kids, but uh, and I'll tell you a little bit later a little bit more about how uh, it, it was an, a sort of online virtual connection. Cool. But uh, I, I uh, had the opportunity to talk to them about astrobiology and tell them a little bit about myself and what I do uh, over the, over the interwebs. Wow. And then and then they got back to me with a whole bunch of questions. And they started sort of, they peppered me with these questions. And and I was just amazed. I was like, are these really eighth graders or is somebody pulling my leg? Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of like, um, you know, when you go online and uh, you think you're talking to a really sexy woman, but it's really a fat, greasy guy sitting in a basement. And you're like, hmm, do these eighth graders have like, I don't know, their own little astrobiological Cyrano de Bergerac working with them? What's going on? Yeah, I understand. Or, or on the internet, how do, you know, how do you know it's not really a smart dog typing at you? You don't even know it's a person. You know? That's so true. So true. Yeah. So, so, so anyways, but... But, but it, you were impressed. But, no, I was impressed. These are verified eighth graders. But, and So listen, I guess what we should do right now is jump into the questions from our eighth graders that uh, you had the opportunity to correspond with. Yeah, these are these are, these kids are from the Arroyo Vista Charter School in Chula Vista, California, mm-hmm. and they really are eighth graders. Wow. Okay. So uh, here's the you know I'm just going to start at the top just uh, in, instead of randomly stabbing about. This is from Christian P. Uh, by the way, these are eighth graders. We are not allowed to use their full names because uh, that would be creepy. <laughs> uh, uh, this is what Christian P. wants to know, uh, Dr. Funky Spoon. Uh, what unique aspects does our planet have that differentiate it from other planets, and what other planets have some of these same traits? What allows life to thrive? Uh, uh, very well thought out question, Christian P., and a two-parter there. So, yeah. so what, are, what are the aspects of our planet that differentiate it for the purposes of creating life? And then uh, what other planets may have these traits where we can look for perhaps the creation of life? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question. Yeah. And um, and I'm going to answer it on a, you know, not necessarily on an eighth grade level because these kids, I've learned, can handle any level. So I'm right. just going to answer it, you know, like... Uh, so you mean your answer isn't, excuse me, Christian... Duh. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, my. Who doesn't know that, Christian? <laughs> yeah. No. Come on, Christian. Come on, Everybody Christian. knows God. that. No, no. It's you know, it's a great question because um, you know, the, 
the honest answer is it's a little bit of guesswork because we only have one planet with life. And so we won't really know the answer until we find other life and learn what it needs and what we have in common with it. But Mm -hmm. what we strongly suspect is that the important things about Earth that really allow it to to support life have to do with liquid water. Right. And that involves a certain climate range. If you have a planet uh, like Mars that's so frozen that you basically can't have liquid water, or a planet like Venus that's so hot that all water would boil instantly, then um, we think those aren't good places for life. So we're looking for a planet in a certain range of temperatures where you might have liquid water but also um, some kind of stable surface environment and maybe some kind of, you know, Earth also has this kind of geologic activity, this churning interior, what we call plate tectonics, which is just the the surface of the Earth sort of squishing around Mm -hmm. and making geology. And that feeds life. It feeds um, new nutrients and chemicals. So Earth has this, um, the geological and the climate conditions that seem to add up to be a good place for for life. For now, that was a yeah. climate joke, people. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. If, if 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 we don't if we don't mess it up, <laughs> we don't right, mess it up. Right now, we've got a, a great climate. So, um, as far as differenti- differentiating from other planets, what we think we need to do is look for other planets with a climate sort of similar to Earth, meaning with liquid water, oceans on the surface. Mm. And then also, as a, you know, sort of bonus points for a planet, I would say a level of geologic activity mm-hmm. like Earth's. You know, if, if a planet is totally dead, right. like Mars is, where there's no volcanoes, no earthquakes, to me that makes it less likely to uh, be alive because you don't have this sort of churning of the interior which feeds nutrients into the, right. into the environment for life. Now, did, did Mars ever have that at one point? Was there ever a vibrant geologic? Geological active activity uh, happening on Mars. Yeah, yeah. All the signs point to that. You know, we're there with our rovers digging around in the dirt, and we've got our orbiters there, and we keep finding more and more evidence that Mars did indeed have those exact qualities when it was young, both a climate that was warmer and wetter. Mm-hmm. We know that because we see the rivers and right. you know all these channels that are dried out now, and also more geologic activity. That Mars is full of volcanoes, but they're sort of dead they're volcanoes. Dead volcanoes but at one point, it had that vibrant geological activity. It had that warmer climate. So uh, personally, I'm not that optimistic about finding life on Mars today, but I think it's a great place to go look for fossils. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host Emily Rice. Co-hosting with me today is Chuck Nice. Hey. <laughs> and we t- we also have in the studio with us today uh, astrophysicist David Kipping. Hey, greetings to all you Star Talkers out there across the space-time continuum. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm really excited to talk about a matter of really cosmic importance today. Yes, definitely. So we're talking about exoplanets, especially the Trappist One system. Mm-hmm. Um, what have we? So we talked about a little bit about the star. We talked a little bit about the habitability of these planets. Um, well, well. So we we did talk about the lifetime of the star. Right. Just now we had the the because it's around an M dwarf. Star. It's not, uh, very different from a sun-like star. Right. And so, what, but is 
how different is it? So it's lower mass, it's it's a smaller radius, it's cooler, right? Yeah. But what does that mean for the so, exoplanets? Yeah, so I guess maybe uh, another way of saying that question is like, are there problems for potentially people or life? Yeah, maybe being on those so these, these stars live for a very long time yeah. because they they spend a very long time fusing energy or fusing hydrogen to helium, sure. creating energy. But so, I think they're right. I mean, everything happens in slow motion for these stars, right? So actually, you know, the sun settled down into a fairly normal star after it was born within like 100 million years, which is very, very fast. For these M-dwarf stars, it tends to happen like over one to two billion years. Mm. So these these planets would have been receiving way more radiation than the Earth received for a very prolonged period of time. So even though these planets are in the habitable zone right now, even, you know, all three of them, they would have been being baked. And, you know, maybe that sterilized them for a giga year. That's a, a billion years. That's a oh, long time that they were being baked for. Bad, mm. right? Because we've had life on Earth, not, well, not complex life on Earth, but life on Earth has existed for most of the history of the solar system, right? I think it's something like billions of years. Like, the life on Earth actually started very, very quickly yeah. after the sun was f- formed. It happened almost immediately after the heavy bombardment stopped, which is when the Earth was basically pummeled by meteorites and asteroids and the moon had just formed. And almost as soon as the Earth became hospitable, life pretty much appears like straight away. So, you know, that's that's a little bit tantalizing. Is that a, yeah, is that a yeah. coincidence? Yeah. Or that's kind of exciting. It is. And um, but it, so what you're saying though is after being in a microwave oven for a billion years, the hot pocket might be, uh, might be spoiled. <laughs> well, been there, right? A billion like, years in the microwave yeah, will do it. Right. <laughs> wow. But is it just the so the so I study the M dwarfs. I'm going to say that like I pitch my research again a little bit because we my group studies the brown dwarfs, but we also study the, some of the lower mass stars. And mm. for a long time, people I don't want to say didn't care, but like kind of didn't care a little bit. It <laughs> yeah. was t- like you know really when I was applying for grants and you know applying for jobs and stuff like that, I had to spin it a little bit. I had to say you know well these stars are important for exoplanets because X Y and Z. But now like they really are. Yeah. Like, you know, at first everybody was going after the exoplanets around sun-like stars, which was, you know, the last 20 years or so. But planets around these low-mass stars has only happened for the last oh, 10 years These are the sexiest or so, stars right, right now. Yeah, and now everybody sure. cares about them. Yeah. For the longest time, it was like, oh, you know, somebody's got to study them, I guess. And yeah. now it's like, oh. Well, you're in the best place right yeah, now. Yeah, it's a job the, security uh, yeah. because the, I want to tell you that we do not understand these stars very well. That's true. Right? There's a lot about them that we don't know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of job security, you may <laughs> not want to tell people that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in this climate, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no. Well, that, uh, should we get into another query? Yeah. Uh, because sure. we have Arun. Kumar from Facebook and Arun says this what are the what are the chances that this system has an asteroid belt like our own Ooh. would an asteroid belt even cause sufficient dimming of the host star when observing from 40 light years away just speculating given that the planets orbit so close together wouldn't that have caused a lot of exchange of material collisions uh, during the early solar system formation and thereby creating an asteroid belt okay a rune really knows how to write a question. Or <laughs> how, can I say question. eight? He can write eight <laughs> questions. All right, so first, let's just 
Let's talk about the asteroid belt. Is there is there a possibility? It, there's sure. There's a possibility. We don't know about one yet. The outermost planet discovered in this system actually lives beyond what we call the snow line. So the snow line is the distance from the sun, at least in the solar system, at which uh, water ices and ammonia ices and other ices start to condense out and they become sort of solid grains. The reason why we think that's an important distance is beyond that. That's where you start to form gas giants like Jupiter, like Saturn. So you need to be beyond that distance. Now what we find is that in the solar system, in between the last rocky planet, Mars, and the first gas giant planet is the snow line, and right bang on there is the asteroid belt. Huh. Is that a coincidence? So the idea is that you know Jupiter was migrating in when it was forming, it was moving around a lot, and it came in and actually probably stopped Mars from growing into a super-Earth. Mars probably would have grown into a super-Earth was it not for the influence. What's a super-Earth? A super-Earth is like, you know, add on twice the amount of mass that the Earth has. Uh, so just a bigger Earth. And Mars is kind of small. Earth on so, steroids. Yeah, <laughs> and not only that, but it probably stopped another planet from forming, which is what the asteroid belt may have coalesced to, was it not for the influence of Jupiter migrating in so close? So it, I think the asteroid boat is closely tied to what Jupiter did early on in the solar system. Okay. We don't know about any Jupiters around the star. Um, it's actually very rare that these stars even have Jupiter mass planets. So yeah. it's not, I would, my bet would be no, but um, who Can we know? find out? Do we have the technology to find out if there's an asteroid belt around a star like that's this? That's a good question. It would be super hard right now. I mean, even detecting these uh, planets, which are like 70% the size of the Earth, that's big compared to an asteroid, which is like a few kilometers across. Right. Uh, yeah. Even that's like really, really pushing uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope. It was a, it was a, you know, a, a tough discovery for Spitzer and K2 to get those. So an asteroid belt, um, I would be skeptical we could do it with anything we have right now, that's for sure. It would have to be. So sometimes we find as asteroid belts not because they block light from the star, but because they radiate their own heat. But that for that to happen, the asteroid belt has to be close enough in that yeah. it has to be pretty warm and then re-radiate, which I think for this star is going to be very close in and we don't find that. It's usually yeah. called an infrared excess. And there's no space, right? Like I mean, the, it's a packed planetary system. There's no room. Yeah, like, Every single H, slot is taken. Nice. <laughs> the H planet is the H planet outside of the orbit of Mercury relative to the sun, or the H planet is even inside? I, I'm not sure exactly spatially, but I know it, it, its temperature is something like a hundred, uh, I mean, minus 100 degrees Celsius or something. It's a cold beyond the Relatively snow line cold, But still, nice. I think because the, the, the star is so cool, everything is still packed really close in there. Actually, this brings up a discussion that I actually saw other astronomers having on Twitter, which is to think about what the planets would look like from other planets. Oh, yeah. Like sitting on one planet, like right. sitting on, say, D or E or one of the habitable ones and seeing the other planets in your sky. They'd be huge because they're so, they're they're so close. Yeah, because they're so close to one another. Right. Be bigger than the moon. Yeah, I think bigger sky. than the moon yeah. because everything is so close to one another. But then you'd also have to think about every single one of them is tidally locked. And so you'd see different phases depending on where they are relative to you. And you'd only see them at, you know, you'd have to look, you'd have to be sitting at the Terminator and see, um, you know, so you might only be able to see the exterior ones. It's a great, like, kind of solar system visualization problem to, to imagine. But there should be sci-fi yeah. about this. And I, I, I just have a feeling that we're going to see a black light poster of that at any time now. <laughs> 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 totally. It's totally trippy to think about. Exactly. Hey, well, listen, Arun, that is a very good question. Thank you so much, my friend.
Uh, okay, here we go. Now we get to, uh, this is for those of you who uh, listen to the show often, you know that I really suck at uh, pronouncing names. <laughs> I didn't want to, I wasn't going to end it just there. Like, where's this going to go? <laughs> it did kind of seem like I was ending it right there. I had to, for those of you who, uh, right, for those of you who listen routinely, you know I really suck. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> Couple of, yeah. That's a strong finish. Exactly. That was my closer. <laughs> hey, I'm Chuck Nice. I suck. All right. Uh, so I believe this is Tor or Torre uh, Balhaj. Sounds okay. good to me. Right? Okay. And look at me. I'm like looking for approval. Right? Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, here we go. This is what uh, Tor or Torre says. Um, if we were to send a radio signal to that planetary system mm-hmm. using the radio hardware that we currently have or the most advanced that we currently have, would the signal be powerful enough for a potential alien civilization to detect it, hmm. assuming that they are at the same technological level as we? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a good question. that's a really good question. Um, and if it was a directed, purposeful radio signal mm-hmm. um, without doing the full calculation which I probably should do my I, I want to say yes to Here's that to that yeah <laughs> but I know for sure that um, our, our own leakage so we produce you know just uh, radio waves from television signals and radio shows like used this to. which yeah well we used to but uh, even still there's still some leakage we could not detect that if you know if even if it was on the nearest star. Proxima Centauri, Alpha Centauri. We cannot detect leakage from oh. the nearest star with our largest arrays right now. Maybe oh. the next generation, the SKA, might be up for it, which is being built right now. Okay. But right now, even le- even the nearest star, and this isn't the nearest star. So the whole idea of an alien civilization picking up our television broadcast, and that's how they know about our society and who totally we are. Episode. Yeah, it's yeah. like that's the whole. That's that's never going to happen. Well, they could do it if they had much better radio receivers than us. They we're building planet-sized radio receivers, then sure, they could detect us. But oh, okay. That, which is not, I mean, we have planet So it's like a Death Star for rays. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We built a Death Star. That's to, no moon. Yeah, to eavesdrop. <laughs> to eavesdrop. Fuck off, we made it. That's pretty it's not, cool. But so, you know, but it's not far-fetched to think of a civilization with more te- technologically advanced systems than ours, right? Sure. Like... Yeah. That's what we're hoping. That's why we push forward. And maybe this other star has had trillions of years. Well, no. You know, it's more billions of years than we've had to push forward. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I just want to stay optimistic a little bit. Oh, super cool. I'm bummed to hear that they're not listening to, like, our old I Love Lucy Fascinated by listening to our radio shows, I'm I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey. Yeah. Hmm. That's a a very cool thing. All right. So, let's... um, What else do we have? Let's move on to uh, Will Nyland. And Will comes to us from... That sounds like a pseudonym. Will Nyland. Very close to Bill Nye, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, almost. Yeah. <laughs> um, coming to us from Facebook. And he says this, If NASA's budget doesn't increase, would NASA have to partner with private companies uh, to uh, co-fund getting us to anywhere we have to go? Mm. Is this a door to a new space race? Okay, so I mean, he's looking at it from both the uh, optimistic and the realistic standpoint. It's because you know, uh, from what I understand, um, 
Not only is NASA's budget going to be cut under our current administration, uh, but NASA now owes, uh, they have to pay back. What? No, I'm joking. Oh. <laughs> I was like, this I is news to me. Oh my gosh. gosh. Did you see <laughs> I was getting really nervous. Well, you know what's funny is that uh, the current climate in which we it's live, so and you actually believed it. Yes, yeah. it's so believable. Oh my Anything gosh. Goes these days. Yeah, it's oh. like, yeah, oh my God, NASA just got a bill. Oh my God, yeah. we owe the government money. So, uh, but. Oof. Shut it down.